Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Tonight, and frankly, everyone... That's a wrap, as they call it. The 2022 primary season is now over as of tonight. The final polls now close in the final states tell their ballots for November's general election. Just now eight weeks away. Can you believe it? We now have New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Delaware, the last to hold their primary contests. But even the smallest states in America can have quite a big impact on the balance of power here in Washington, D.C., You know, many eyes Snyder on New Hampshire. And of course, this question, who will take on incumbent Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan in the general? Will it be Don Bolduc, a retired Army Brigadier General who's pushed Trump's election lies? Or State Senate President Chuck Morse, who has the backing of establishment Republicans? We're also closely watching a battle between two Trumpers in New Hampshire's first congressional district, both Matt Mowers and Carolyn Levitt. They both worked in the Trump administration. Now, Levitt, she actually backs Trump's stolen election claims. According to a new analysis from 538, about 60 percent of Americans will have an election denier on the ballot this fall. That's quite a number. And an estimated 118 election deniers in House races and eight election doubters have at least a 95 percent chance of winning. What a range, first of all, and the idea of all the ways we can essentially have a synonymous way of thinking about not believing in the integrity of our elections, the spectrum of deniers, doubters, all of this telling you a lot about the democracy that we live in today. Now, despite all the investigations swirling around Trump, the growing classified documents scandal, which we have new developments on tonight, and the January 6th hearings in Congress, well, they're about to ramp up again. Donald Trump He remains, in spite of all of that, undeniably a very powerful force in the GOP. And don't take my word for it. The numbers actually prove it. I mean, his election success rate so far this year alone, around 89 percent of Trump-backed candidates have actually won their primaries. That's down a little from 96 percent in 2020, but it's also up from 2018 when his candidates won 88 percent of their contests. Republicans do face an energized electorate on the Democratic side, of course, in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned. So it's quite the timing for, of course, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham to have an abortion bill proposal like this today. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. If we take back the House and the Senate, I can assure you we'll have a vote on our bill. Hmm. I wonder how other Republicans and Democrats felt about that. I mean, some are saying that he just handed Democrats a great campaign ad and a talking point. I mean, the Democratic leader of the Senate, well, is already pouncing. What are Democrats doing? Talking about new jobs cheaper costs. What are the MAGA Republicans doing? 
a nationwide abortion ban. Senator Graham says that he can, quote, assure a vote to restrict abortions on the federal level if Republicans win control of Congress once again. But you know who wouldn't actually confirm that particular point? The Senate's top Republican. In terms of scheduling, I think most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. By most of and prefer, I'm sure there's a little bit of a code going on right there. I mean, Graham may argue the following about this bill. I don't think this is going to hurt us. But clearly, many in his party disagree with the general election just so close. I mean, there hasn't been anything close to a united show of support with abortion rights, a lightning rod issue impacting the votes. Let's take it down around the table to CNN political commentators David Swerdlick and Scott Jennings. I'm with Wisconsin Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan. Pocan, I'm so glad that you're all here today. First of all, let's just start with the, sort of the elephant in the room here. The elephant is symbol of the GOP, of course. And I do wonder, why is Senator Lindsey Graham talking about this? I mean, there are points that the Republicans want to raise about Joe Biden, the president of the United States, about Democrats, about numbers that are not that favorable. Why do you think he decided that today was the day, this was the time? Anyone want to read his mind? Yeah. Senator Graham, I think he wants to burnish his conservative credentials. I think he also thinks he's making some vulnerable Senate Democrats take a tough vote. Mm. The problem for him, though, I think, is that uh, Senator McConnell, your former boss, I believe, right? Uh, Senator, um, Senator McConnell said quietly what is screaming loudly from this bill, which is that you can either be for states' rights or you can be for this bill, but you can't be for both for so long. The issue was supposedly about states' rights and not having Roe have a blanket ruling for the country. That wouldn't be the case if this was the law. And by the way, Alito, in his majority opinion, talked about returning to the states. It wasn't that he wanted to punt to the the federal government. He wanted it to be a state issue, which is part of the reason everyone was up in arms about it. Right. Just one more quick point I was going to say. For Democrats, this is an issue, as you said, Laura. Um, Senator Shaheen the Democratic senator from New Hampshire who isn't on the ballot today tweeted about it a couple of hours ago saying, bring it on. If this is the issue that Republicans want to fight over, we'll fight over this issue. Should they bring it on? Uh, Yeah. Uh, And and I want them to keep talking about Social Security. They want to put it on the chopping block every five years. That's going to help us in November. And I want them to do every extremist MAGA viewpoint that Donald Trump has because right now we're on a roll. We've got a number of bills that we've passed we can talk about. We're reducing the costs on health care and energy. Gas has gone down. By the end of the month, it might get less than $3 a gallon. Uh, we've got some good tailwinds right now. So I would encourage them to talk about every extremist position that only satisfies the Republican primary voter as much as they want to. That's exactly what we need. You agree, obviously, right? I mean, Scott, <laughs> completely nothing to say about that. Uh, well, I woke up this morning quite excited to talk about inflation. It was a terrible <laughs> report today, and uh, now we're talking about abortion tonight. Excited so. because, of course, you think it would be, <laughs> be harmful for Biden. Well, look, I, I wanted to see the numbers because... Uh, The congressman here and the rest of the Democrats voted for something called the Inflation Reduction Act, and I see that it's not working. And so I thought we might be talking about that, but now we have Senator Graham's bill uh, to discuss today. Here's what I think about it. Number one, the underpinning of your argument, David, is that that there are 60 votes for anything in the U.S. Senate, and there isn't. There weren't 60 votes for Chuck Schumer's messaging bill in the spring. Got 48 votes. Didn't even get all the Democrats. And there wouldn't be 60 votes for Lindsey Graham's bill. So what you have had here is a Democrat and a Republican 
putting out messaging bills. And the Republican right. message on this bill is something that candidly is not unpopular. 15 weeks and the exceptions for rape, uh, life of the mother, and incest. It's not unlike what they have in Europe. And it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty standard Republican position for the last several decades. What Chuck Schumer said on the floor is a lie. He's, they're trying to position it as a total national ban. That's not true. What Graham laid out today were principles that most Republicans and, frankly, a majority of voters, if you look at several national polls, would agree with. Fifteen weeks is fine. The exceptions are good. The Democrat position is extreme and unpopular. Abortion on demand anytime, all you want. I just, I, heard I, the Republican, I just heard the Republican endorsing what Lindsey Graham did today, and I'm glad. I think they should keep these proposals up because what American people found out is after all the efforts to stack the Supreme Court with some conservative extremists that argue, they went after Roe. They said they were going to do it 50 years later. They got it done. We got to believe them at their word. They're going to ban abortion if they get in charge. They're going to put Social Security in the choppy block if they're in charge. This is their agenda. And, you know, in contrast it with the Democrats are doing right now, we've done a lot around efforts, creating jobs and trying to lower uh, costs out of the worldwide inflation. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy with our contrasting, our agenda, what we've actually done with what they say they're going to do because those extremist positions don't play with independence and moderates. Let me ask you that point, I want to know, know, know what limits you're for. Hmm. What limits on abortion could you support? We want to keep the current law. We want to codify Roe. What's there been, is no current what's law. Been law. We want to keep what law has been for 50 Would years you have voted for in the this Schumer country. I, what the bottom line is, is the American people are smarter than what you're trying to do, and Lindsey Graham and others are trying to spin them around. I want to have an Excuse me, excuse me. I'd like him to answer the question because you did ask one. Sure. Your answer is I want to go back to exactly where we were for 50 years since Roe in this country. That's exactly what Democrats want to do. We want to codify Roe and get that done. It's as simple as that. American people support that so proposal. No limits. So no limits. The proposal that we've had in this country for 50 years. What limits? What limits? Do you believe there should be a time limit? I think we should go any, back to the moment. law. I, I don't know how much more clear I can be other than the law that we've other had in this answer. country Don't worry, Merrick Garland has the same <laughs> concern when people try to <laughs> ask him <laughs> questions excuse me, over and over yeah. again about the point. But I yeah. think your point, if I'm understanding correctly, is if you're talking about the law of the land being Roe, obviously there was the trimester framework. There was the notion of limitations that was inherent in that balance of power between states' rights and individual people as well, individual women. And so when I hear that, but it's interesting. Here we are, a day where, frankly, we could be talking about, if you were a Republican and supportive of it, inflation. You could be yeah. talking about the numbers. But because of what Senator Lindsey Graham has done, that's not the conversation. That's his point. Right. And the only thing I was going to add to what you said, Scott, a minute ago, and to your point, Laura, is that the fact that you don't have 60 votes and that this would only be a cloture vote and not a vote on final passage shows that it's about trying to make people take a tough vote and not actually trying to get to some kind of consensus on whether it should be 15 weeks or 20 but, weeks yeah. or something well, like Europe. And that, I think, is what Democrats are going to exploit. Well, but, actually, but, right now, I'll give the audience time to go in their dictionaries and look up the word cloture for a second. <laughs> okay, everyone, everyone stick around. Tonight, there is more information revealing what led the search of Donald Trump's home as well. And there is also news on the Justice Department's sprawling investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That's next. It's spelled C-L-O-T-U-R-E. Enjoy. There are new details tonight on the sprawling DOJ investigation in Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Subpoenas obtained by CNN make it very clear 
Prosecutors are looking at nearly every aspect of his actions, from the fake electors plot to the fundraising operation and really everything in between and beyond. This is an effort that now has many in Trump's orbit very concerned about maybe being caught up in a federal investigation. And I'm just being kind when I say the word maybe. That reporting comes with CNN senior correspondent Evan Perez, who's here with me now with Miles Taylor, the former chief of staff to Trump's Homeland Security Secretary and former Assistant Attorney General Elliot Williams is here as well. Evan, let me begin with you. It's your reporting. I mean, look, you've been talking to sources forever. I don't even know when you sleep because we I always don't. go. To, you don't. Okay, you don't. There you go. Wonderful. Um, what are you learning now about all these subpoenas? And I mean, it's got to have some knees shaking. It, it has to because what the what the prosecutors seem to be working again, looking at the subpoenas, the language in the subpoenas, the list of people that they're talking about, the the entities that they're looking into. Uh, it, what it tells us is that they're trying to connect the dots, and a lot of it has to do with the money, the money that was being fundraised for the rallies, the, that, mm. of course, was connected to some of the violence that happened before and on January 6th. The fundraising for the, the, the Save America PAC, which is the, the big money-raising uh, uh, vehicle that the former president has used uh, since the election. Uh, there is the fundraising for trying to get and whether people were being paid to push the idea that there was fraud and to organize these electors that were supposed to help keep the former president mm. in, in office, even though he had lost the election. So the underpinning of all of this is following the money, which is something we'd heard the Justice Department was going to do and clearly is now being done. And, and look, the broadness of this is what has stunned people because they clearly are picking up on every single person who was connected to this effort. On the one hand, you hear broad and you think, well, they're trying to cover all their bases. But then there's a talking point that will come up like, this must be a fishing expedition, is it? Well, it can't be because in order to, so for instance, to, to execute a search warrant, um, uh, Boris Epstein's phone, uh, a former Trump aide, Boris Epstein's phone search. In order to get a search warrant, a judge has found uh, that there's probable cause, it's more likely than not that a crime was committed, and that uh, he and uh, it has been established that there's evidence on that phone. I mean, it like, has to be particularized. Like, it has not, to be you clear can't and narrow. just say, you know what, I want to get your phone. Let's just send out letters to 30 people and have them send their telephones in. And that's the way evidence gathering works. There is some basis that has to be established by a court. And in fact, if there isn't a basis for it, if you get to trial, it gets thrown out anyway. So um, because, you know, you can't you can't build a trial on fishing expeditions. So this idea that you hear that it's all fishing expedition and it's, and it's a witch hunt, we have checks in the system that prevent that from happening. But you also want to be broad enough to cover the different things you're investigating. And you're talking about the idea of documents or the idea of what led up to January 6th as a premise, as a proposition mm -hmm. You've got to go quite broad. When you hear the idea, Miles, of looking at fundraising and people who owe all the money, I think money, I think a lot of hands have touched it. Is this broader than you think we all expect it to be? Uh, it looks like the Justice Department is coming back to what this was at the beginning, hmm. which was a very broad, multi-month, multi-pronged conspiracy to overturn an election. Of course it's going to be broad. Of course it's going to involve lots of people, lots of cell phones, I think we've only still scratched the surface of it. I mean, each of these targets is probably going to lead to more targets, more people, more conversations as the Justice Department gets the full picture. Now, for years, we've been talking about people in Trump's orbit who 
kind of roll their eyes every time there's a new investigation into Trump. Well, now those same people are rolling into a ball because they're getting pulled into the investigation with subpoenas. And, you know, Evan just hit on part of it. But think about the whole picture right now that's enveloping these people. Mm. You've got the Manhattan DA who's looking into the Trump organization. You've got the New York Attorney General, who I think is also looking into the Trump organization in a civil probe. You've got the election probe in Georgia. You've got the DOJ Mar-a-Lago classified documents probe. And then separately at DOJ, we thought we'd seen investigations into fraudulent money related to the election and Trump, fraudulent ballots, uh, and this is why Evan Press Trump. can't sleep. Well, yeah, are, are, you, and, are you having an insomniac reaction to this yeah, right, now? Just, right, right now? And now they're rolling into what appears to be one mega investigation. Mega MAGA investigation. Mega no, MAGA investigation. But, but, you know, the other thing about money as evidence, we're, for the most part, unless things get really shady, you're not dealing in suitcases of cash. What you are dealing with are bank transactions, bank records, and so on, and they can be traced and tracked. You can find out who is sending money, who's receiving money, and that's actually very ba- valuable evidence because it doesn't lie. It's not like someone's testimony that there's can a be paper biased. trail. So there's paper trail yeah. whenever you yeah. have money in these kinds of investigations. Speaking of paper trails, today the judge released even more of that previously redacted Mar-a-Lago affidavit and discussion point about what happened down there. What's the latest? Well, we know a lot of this was matching up to what we heard in some of the, litiga- the litigation over the special master. But what we what we saw in this document, you know, is some of the markings that came from those 38 documents that they got in back in, in June. It gives you a sense that, you know, this is why there was so much alarm when they came back with those documents and why they decided they needed to go back in for, to do this very extraordinary search uh, at Mar-a-Lago in, last month. Well, and we also can't even be sure that this is the end of it. I I, I don't want to start conspiracy theories (laughs) here, but the National Archives and Records Administration has now said they're not entirely sure sure. they have all of the documents. And and again, caveat here, I don't know if this is anything to look into, but we've had people sleuthing on the web that have shown that in May when Donald Trump was asked, do you have any more documents? Just a couple days later, he flew out of Mar-a-Lago to Bedminster and people were seen loading, you know, cardboard boxes onto the plane. Could they have had innocuous things in there and stuffed animals? Maybe, but it seemed a little bit fishy. And I fully suspect the Justice Department is looking at other locations that the ex-president might have potentially taken documents. The fact that they're not confident makes me not confident. And look, he had a whole bunch of empty folders that said they held classified information and inside there was nothing. Where is that information now? I got to tell you, I have many questions if there was a Teddy Ruxpin inside of one of those. I brought it back. Deep I brought it back, Teddy Ruxpin. No, not just a stuffed animal. I'm specific about it. I think maybe games like Tiddlywinks. He's an old timer, so that's probably what he's got in there. Tiddlywinks. I have not. And I'm getting clown for Teddy Ruxpin. Okay, we're leaving it there. Evan Perez, Miles Taylor, Elliot Williams, thank you so much. I had a Teddy Ruxpin, by the way. It was incredible. There's also incredible news in Ukraine's fight for freedom. Nearly seven months into the war, Ukraine has Russians on the run, retaking parts of occupied territory in what can only be described as a stunning counteroffensive. We're going to take a look at this amazing turnaround and what it really means for the future of the war with a former spokesperson for Ukraine's President Zelensky. She's next. In the wake of Ukraine's stunning advance in northeastern Ukraine, the Pentagon now reports a number of Russian forces are retreating 
and crossing back into Russia from the Kharkiv region. This time lapse shows the enormous gains Ukrainian troops have made over just the last 10 days. The Ukrainian president says it amounts to 2,300 square miles of land, about a tenth of the nation's landmass. CNN was the first news organization to enter one of the reclaimed cities just this past Saturday, and it bore witness to the destruction that was left behind. Talking boxes of abandoned Russian equipment and tanks, they're now in Ukrainian possession. But is this a turning point in the war overall? Well, the White House expressed some cautious optimism. I think what you're seeing is certainly um, a shift in momentum by, uh, by the Ukrainian armed forces, particularly in the north. I would let President Zelensky determine and decide whether he feels uh, militarily they've reached a turning point. But clearly, uh, at least in the Donbass, the, the, there's a sense of momentum here by the Ukrainian armed forces. And so what we're going to do is continue to support them as best we can. Well, joining me tonight is a Ukrainian journalist and the former spokesperson for President Zelensky, Yulia Mendel. She's also the author of The Fight of Our Lives, a really fascinating and compelling read as well about your time with the president as the press secretary as well. And I'm curious, Yulia, first of all, welcome. But I, you heard the, um, the, the person just speaking and talking about the idea of whether a turnaround was the right terminology to use. What do you make of these successes we're, we're hearing about now particularly given the context of where we have been over more than six months. Well, thank you for having me. And of course, the recent developments are a celebration for all Ukrainians because we have almost returned all the Kharkiv region, which is the northeastern region, and we are advancing to Donbass. Except this, we except this, we saw that there are already settlements that are liberated at my home region, which is in the south of Ukraine, which is Kherson region. So, of course, Ukrainians are celebrating, but it doesn't mean that the war is over. And the recent information that came from the Vice Prime Minister of Ukraine, Olga Stefanishina, that is responsible for Euro integration in Ukraine, says that there were already attempts from Russian leadership, official and non-official, after this counter-offensive by Ukrainians, to try to negotiate. But in my book, The Fight of Our Lives, I'm explaining, actually, how Russians were negotiating the peace with Ukraine for eight years, and how they failed, and instead of achieving peace, they started this large scale war. So Ukrainians are very cautious about these fragile diplomatic attempts of Russia and they want to show the strength to Putin because this is the only thing that Putin understands and to uh, regain more territories. As far as I know, President Zelensky stands now on the position that was already fixed on the paper uh, as security guarantees to return the whole territory of Ukraine Mm. taken by Russia. So when you think about that and the idea of how you are able to define or think about what success would look like for Russia versus, of course, Ukraine, I wonder what you attribute and what the leadership in Ukraine attributes to some of the gains they've had. There's been a lot of support and aid from our American military system, other nations as well. But there certainly has been more that has been needed. There's still a lot more to do to accomplish. This has been a huge undertaking, and it really is a battle for their democracy. What do you attribute to the success so far? Well, I'm sure that every Ukrainian feels that American 
uh, people are friends and they trust really that American people will stand with Ukrainians till the very end because we both share the value of freedom. We understand it as a fundamental value for our people. But in fact, there is only one response uh, uh, to the question, when should uh, the help to Ukraine finish? And the answer is uh, the help should finish when Russia finishes its cruel war against Ukraine. Because Russia keeps still sending missiles, killing Ukrainians, uh, uh, maintaining genocidal practices in occupied territories, and there is no other way than just kicking out their asses from my country, and uh, uh, this will be already the partial victory for Ukraine. The second step is, of course, to rebuild the country so that the first, the biggest democracy on post-Soviet region can thrive. You know, you write about in your book, The Fight of Our Lives, the, the role that you personally had as a woman in what has often been a very male-dominated field in Ukraine in particular, in government, and of course your individual role. And there is a, a, a group that I cannot overlook, obviously, as a woman myself, and that is about um, the women who are taking such a, an extraordinary role in this fight for the democracy and the fight for the battle in um, Ukraine. And there's even a New York Times article and, and highlighted this particular area talking about war brings Ukraine's women new roles and new dangers. And uh, talk to me a little bit about just how much the role of women has transformed during this invasion. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, women are holding the front line, literally uh, 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 fighting with Russians, but also they are holding the rear. Um, I was also meeting a lot of females who turned to be snipers, who took rifles and went to the battlefield, and they are doing really great shoulder to shoulder with male. But also, uh, females have taken this direction of humanitarian coordination aid. They are bringing the cars and ambulances from abroad and they are helping with everything that is needed. And one of the particular roles, which is for me very amazing, that so many females were pregnant, standing, staying uh, during the war in the country and were delivering kids in their uh, bomb shelters. This is some role that is really very difficult to imagine, but they were doing this to keep their kids safe, to deliver safely, you know. And uh, now these young mothers, they... Uh, actually experience uh, this motherhood through the war. I think this is an amazing experience and I feel this these females are also heroes. So uh, females are actually holding strong there in Ukraine and uh, we are as proud with them as with every male on our front lines. So important to hear this and thank you for being a part of our show today and the book you wrote really it's incredible to hear about your unique perspective and what we're seeing on the ground. I know there's a long way to go Thank you. Thank you, Yulia Mandel. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, in this country, the next major economic crisis may be heading down the tracks, so to speak. Taking a look at the potential freight rail strike that could mean something for your wallet, for store shelves, and President Biden's efforts to keep Democrats in control of Congress. Plus, the impacts already being felt all across this country. We'll talk about it next. Friday looms as a potential economic time bomb. You know, we could just be days away from the first major rail strike in this country in 30 years. And we're already seeing an impact with Amtrak canceling some of its routes. But if there is a strike, we're all going to feel that strike. 
it would already mean high prices getting even worse, especially when it comes to feeding your family. You know, just today, new data shows prices climbing again in August. High grocery costs driving a very big part of that. And it's a bad situation poised to get even worse. No option actually exists that can handle the almost 30% of goods that are shipped on our trains. Now, when it comes to food, we're talking about 20% of the grain shipped that way. So if the trains stop running, it'll be impossible to keep the grocery shelves full. When you factor in a national shortage of truck drivers, there's actually not a good backup for things from coal to, well, everything else being shipped, even to crude oil, to steel, to lumber or car parts. We're talking about a potential economic impact of close to $2 billion, with a B, billion dollars a day. So even as the president celebrates passing the Inflation Reduction Act, his administration is urgently trying to avoid the strike I'm talking about. Agencies from the Department of Transportation and Labor to the Pentagon, FEMA's in it, HHS and Energy are all trying to come up with contingencies. The president himself is famously the guy who took the train to work for years, right? Even when he left Washington, he took the Amtrak after the end of the Obama administration. Remember that? And he campaigned hard on being on the side of labor. I promise to be the most pro-union president in American history. The most pro-union president in history. The most pro-union president. The most pro-union president you have ever seen. I promised you that I'd be the most pro-union president. Well, I wonder if that will last through the end of the week. I mean, the reality is Joe Biden's already done all that he legally can do. In July, he set up an emergency board to mediate the dispute. That's how we got the so-called cooling off period that's going to end this Friday. And at this point, the two sides either agree to keep talking or there's a strike or or Congress could step in. The Railway Labor Act gives Congress and, by the way, only Congress, the power to keep those trains moving. And we just so happen to have a member of Congress who is on the Labor Committee here at the table Um, I'm glad you're here talking about these issues in particular, because, look, I mean, when you think about it, first of all, many people might not realize, Congressman, that this this strike potentially is going to impact all of our lives. The numbers are already there. Tell me, do you anticipate that Congress is going to step in in some way if this actually comes to that this Friday? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it, what you often find in these cases just happened in where I come from in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, SEIU and the UW Health mm-hmm. uh, reached agreement the morning of the start of a strike date. Uh, often you need deadlines, just like Congress needs deadlines to get both parties to really put their best offer. In this case, there's two unions uh, left that don't have agreements. It's over unpaid time off for sick. So for being sick, not even sick pay, just unpaid time. And the companies have rolled back staffing over the last several years and made it really tough. I mean, these are 12-hour shifts, and you're on call at any given time. I think unions are at a 60-year high right now. I'm a union member three decades, International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. I think if people understand that workers have not been getting their the right efforts to, to mm-hmm. get what they really deserve for a long time. Out of the Trump era, we watch all these rollbacks of the National Labor Relations Board and other rules. Um, people support workers. And there is international inflation. There's no question across the globe. At the same time, we want workers to be treated fairly. And I, I think at the end of the day, there will be resolution to this. I don't think you need Congress to step in. But I'm glad to see organizing with Starbucks workers, with Amazon workers, with REI, all these other areas that haven't been organized before. 
This is a moment for workers to have their voices be heard about their working conditions, the safety conditions, and their pay and benefits. And uh, I support the railroad workers right now. I mean, I, I think you're, you're right. Theoretically, of course, that everyone wants to support those who ought to have f- fair labor, fair conditions, and fair work environments. At the same token, let's just be truthful, we have a bit of a selfish mentality at times in this country when it comes to, look, can I really compartmentalize if it's going to make me spend more in the end? Do you think, Scott, that American voters will align with that thought? No. I mean, if the trains stop running, it's everything from food, which you mentioned, uh, you know, goods, uh, like the chlorine they use to treat the water at the water treatment plants. That moves by rail in many Mm. cases. I mean, Amtrak, a lot of people take the Amtrak every day. I mean, the implications of this will be felt in every community in America. And so, no, I don't think Americans are going to like that because they're already suffering through massive 40-year high inflation. They just suffered through a summer of very high gas prices. You can you still go into towns in America where uh, there's labor shortages. People can't find enough workers to keep restaurants and coffee shops open in different places. And so I, I really do think the American people have been stretched to the brink. And you throw a railroad strike on top of it. I mean, you say that the companies aren't, aren't making a good offer. Then why did most of the unions already agree? You've got two holdouts here. I think the pre- First of all, I think the Congress could and should act because it's an, it really could be a national security issue. But the president here, the guy who says he's the union president, I hope is picking up the phone and telling these holdout unions, you aren't going to strike. You can't do this to this country. For his own political health, he ought to be doing well, Let me tell you, Senator Dick Durbin today said, I don't think it's likely we're going to intervene. The House Majority Leader, Sandy Hoyer, said that um, Congress would pass legislation if needed. So there's a little bit of a, a distinction of what might happen. But do you see this? I mean, the, on the other hand, Scott talks about maybe the, the pessimism yeah. around it. But you know what? On the other hand, it's not as if the union members are not themselves Americans and voters, not themselves taxpayers and thinking about their own rights. I mean, they're as much pride electors as everyone else. Would, I mean, is that discounting them? No, and I, I'm not sure how this gets solved. To Scott's point, I think there's, these two unions are still holding out out of the 12 because they have the leverage right now. They know President Biden can't afford a railroad strike. Mm. To the congressman's point, I think that, uh, that a deadline will help. A strike or a threat of a strike can be an opportunity for a president. Let's think way, way, way back to President Reagan breaking the air traffic controller strike. Mm. I don't think this is the same situation. It might be the inverse. To me, it seems a little bit like President Biden might just have to find a way to get these companies to move a little bit toward the unions, make a deal. Just one more quick point that I was going to say was it's what the Biden administration can't afford to do, Congressman, is they can't afford to wait. If there's going to be a vote in Congress, if the leadership is going to to force something with the Railroad Act, if the president is going to put his thumb on the scale, they've got to do it by Friday. They can't let it drag out. Tomorrow morning, the White House is already with Secretary Walsh convening the, the parties. A strike is good for no one. It's not right. good for workers. It's not good for the companies. It's not good for the American people. But mistreating workers uh, is something that we have to stand up for. And I think everyone understands if you can't even have unpaid time off to be sick, what kind of a job is that, right? I mean, the companies have just gone too far with too many of the rules have all been in their favor. Finally, this is a time period. That's why at a 60-year high, people's opinion are on behalf of workers. Uh, I hope the railroad workers get what they deserve Uh, They should. These companies should come to the table. And at the end of the day, I think uh, this will be a done story. But more workers in this country will have a little more say in their workplace. And that's a very good thing. I tell you, we'll see what happens on Friday. Nothing like a deadline to make people get to the table. And they are a very important part of our economy, as we've seen. Stick around, everyone. We're going to have a much very different kind of labor issue ahead. Have you heard about this thing called quiet quitting? 
Are you doing it right now at the job that you have these days? Well, maybe there's a better alternative, even by adding something to your busy life. We'll talk about that in the conversation next. All right, forget about hustle culture. That apparently is out, and now quiet quitting is in. That's according to a new survey from Gallup that finds quiet quitters make up at least half of the United States workforce, and that's probably more. Maybe the people who took the poll were quiet quitting. Who knows? The idea of a person doing the bare minimum is what it's known as quiet quitting, and frankly, it's not that new. But there is something to be said about just how many people now identify with the term and think of themselves as quiet quitters. So what's really going on here? Is it about the workplace or the workers themselves? Back with you now from the conversation, David Swerdlick, Congressman Mark Pocan, and Scott Jennings, who laughed when I said, who is it about? So I'm going to go right to you. (laughs) Who's it about, Scott? Me. Oh. Are you you uh, quiet quitting right now? Are you phoning it in? You know, only Gen Z, by the way, could be so myopic that they think they invented slacking off. I mean, when we did it, when we do it, we're smart enough not to announce it. We just said slacking off. I mean, look, go to work, do your job, hustle. That's that's the American dream. That's how you get ahead in life. You did it. You're a small business owner. You do it at your job. I know for a fact you do it. Go do your job and hustle. This idea, this bare minimum America, that makes me sick, to be honest with you. I hate that value, bare minimum America. I want an America where everybody hustles and creates a better future for their kids, and, they, and then they instill that value. That, 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 to me, is the American dream. And so, I don't know, this makes me very uncomfortable. I mean, I'm an 80s baby, so I can't claim to be Gen, Gen Z. But I will tell you, I mean, if I'm, to think about what the philosophy is, it's about saying, why should I lean in? if I don't get the benefits of it. It's kind of what people used to talk about before and say, you know what, I hate having to pay in Social Security because by the time I'm that age, I'm not going to get anything out of it. Now, that's not the right mentality to have. We can all just nod our heads, but that's what it's about. So is it really a reflection of, look, the workforce isn't working for the American worker, that the American dream, is that elusive? So I, I, I agree with Scott that hustling is probably the better way to go in the long term. If you want to get ahead for yourself, do what you want in your career, provide for your family, so on and so on. But yes, we came up in a simpler time. It's tougher out there for people in Gen Z now who, who are trying to figure out what the career paths are. It's not just, you know, join a union and get a job or go to college and get a job. And I think that plays into it. I also think the return to work issue mm. plays into it. Uh, people like me are fortunate enough to work remotely. There are a lot of people who are out there working in customer-facing mm-hmm. or client-facing positions out there. And over the last two years, it's tough. You combine that with the fact that we have low, low, low unemployment and people know there are other jobs. And I think it's a, it's a tricky balance. In fact, there's a poll we have out that talks about those who prefer to work on-site versus off-site. Let's put it up for a second for people mm-hmm. to look at because it's pretty interesting. Those who prefer pre-pandemic, it was 60% of U.S. adults preferred to work on-site. Now it's 6%. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a heck of a number. I mean, Congressman, you can't really phone it in. No, but I mean, maybe no, you can. You do. Foxy, you still have I mean, proxy voting. <laughs> you got vote. that, but <laughs> no, you know, this I agree. This is just a change coming out of COVID. Um, you know, the other thing we're seeing, and as an employer, uh, that people are doing short skins at a job, and then the students at a job, and they leave. Yeah. And you know, I I always look for someone who's got some longevity in a job because you want to know that they've done it. 
they think that's not valuable. I do think at some point that'll change. But I think this is fundamentally part of why we just had the last conversation about unions. People are not necessarily getting treated with the respect and dignity they want at their workplace. In some cases, that means you organize. In some cases, it means they're doing quiet quitting. I don't personally think that's the most effective way. But uh, this is part of maybe that change we're seeing and then coming back out of COVID. Hopefully, at the end of the day, it goes more towards the organizing efforts, not quiet quitting. But I do think, uh, you know, employers have had... Uh, an awful lot of the cards, all the jacks, queens, kings, and aces in their hands, and a lot of workers have twos, threes, and fours. And uh, you're going to see, I think, more efforts to get a voice in your workplace, whether it be quiet quitting or, again, I think unionization is the real answer. Speaking of jokers, you're smug right now. What's going? On? What's, what's happening right now? You Me? think that? Uh, y- yes, you, Scott. Do you think that this is a matter of people being slothful and lazy, or is it a matter of look? I mean, why should people? And I'm going to play that without. Why should people go? Well, above and beyond, and get the bare minimum in return. Yeah, I, I you, actually, don't, you don't even have a living wage issue that's universal. So I, I, I do think we've made it too easy to not have a job in this country, and and some of it was COVID relief, and and we've come out of this pandemic. But I think we've made it a little too easy to just not show up for work. And I and I and and in, in my view, the better American culture would be to to instill the value of showing up for work as a good thing, not a bad thing, and showing up and hustling as a good thing. And not something for suckers, and that and that working is required, and that you just can't skate by in life by not working or occasionally working or quitting when you feel like it. That's just it's just not how that's the, not how I was brought up. The thing up. is, there's so many other opportunities. You can leave a job and get another but job. Some people don't go to any the next hour, not even the next day. And that's part of, I think, why we're seeing some of this. It's just very easy to find a job right now. Well, we will see. It doesn't end here. None of you quiet quit on the set just now. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, David Swerdlett, Congressman Mark Pocan, and Scott Jennings. Thanks for watching, everyone. Don Lemon tonight, live from London, starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.